0: in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
2: I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but
1: we love it.
2: Hi, and welcome to Food. I'm Mark Bittman. We have a great show for you today with Ray Anthony Barrett as my guest. At this point, I'm not sure whether Ray is best known for his work as a chef. He runs the pop-up and catering company Cinque, C-I-N-Q-U-E, in Los Angeles, or for his work as an artist, at which he's fabulous. He's actually very good at both. And as always, you can reach out to us on our hotline, 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763 or via email at bitmanpod at gmail.com. I'll be right back. Before we get to today's recipes, I want to shout out a recipe by Ray Anthony Barrett for Hoppin' John, which you can find on the LA Times website. It is a beautiful recipe, but way too long for me to go through here. Hoppin' John, of course, is the famous African-American dish. I believe Ray Anthony Barrett in the piece describes it as African-American cuisine in a bowl, but... Perfect for New Year's when it's at its most traditional. But a spectacular expression of what's probably the world's most popular dish, rice and beans. Okay, we're going to do something completely different, which we call everything but the chicken salad. And it is a vegan, non-chicken, but chicken-like salad. Not entirely vegan if you use regular mayonnaise, but you can use vegan mayonnaise if you like. So, take a pound of jicama or celeriac... And using the shredding attachment on a food processor or the largest holes on a box grater, peel that and then grate it. Mix it with a generous pinch of salt and let it sit in a colander in the sink or over a bowl for about a half an hour. Then rinse it and wring it as dry as you can manage in a towel. Put that in a large bowl. Uh, While that's soaking, toast a half a cup of raw sunflower seeds in a skillet over medium heat. That'll just take three or four minutes. Toss the sunflower seeds with the jicama in that bowl, and then in a separate bowl, combine a half a cup of mayonnaise, that can be vegan as I said, a tablespoon of Dijon mustard, a tablespoon of white wine vinegar, two tablespoons of olive oil, and a bit of fresh tarragon, say a teaspoon of fresh tarragon or a pinch of dried tarragon. Add some salt and pepper to that and whisk it to combine. Obviously, that's a vinaigrette. You can taste and adjust the seasoning. In the bowl with the jicama, add a cup of halved seedless red grapes, three celery stalks chopped, half a small red onion chopped, and toss that with some of the dressing. All the jicama, the sunflower seeds, the grapes, celery, onion, toss that all with some of the dressing, taste it, add more dressing if you like. And then to serve, put about eight Big romaine leaves on a platter and a spoonful of salad in each of those. If you have any dressing left and you want to drizzle that over the top, that's fine too. And or a little more chopped tarragon. That is really a great salad. Enjoy that. I met Ray Anthony Barrett on Instagram a little bit ago. Uh, Actually, posted something complimentary about this very podcast, hooray. We chatted back and forth. And I felt like I was meeting someone thoughtful, insightful, intelligent, and super talented in many areas. His thoughts on how art and food intersect and how art should play a role in every aspect of our culture are enlightening. I felt enlightened after talking with him. And I think you will also. I'm excited for you to listen to this. I think it's funny because we met through instagram or some other online thing but then we quickly discovered we were both friends with robin coda who i visited about 10 years ago and we've actually we saw each other once quickly since then but really did not hang out except that one time but i just adore that woman
1: yeah she's amazing and it's been really important to connect with her and have a relationship with farmers like her and her story and the story of her family and what they've gone through in this country is an american story about food and that's what i'm focused on that's what i'm interested in in the food project that i do cinque as a pop-up and more yeah i think her story is great i guess i should have her on the podcast so
2: she can tell it but yet another american story of land theft
1: it's from the beginning and and it keeps going
2: yeah it keeps going. I just was reading something, and it referred to the land rush of 1889, which I hadn't thought of. I mean, I think a lot about the Homestead Act, and I think a lot about land theft in general. And I think about how white Americans gave land to white Americans, and so on, and so on, and so on. But I hadn't thought about that specific thing, maybe since high school. 1889, there was the giveaway of this. They basically decided that Oklahoma couldn't belong to Native Americans after all. First, they decided to shove all the indigenous Southeastern people into Oklahoma, and then they decided, no, we're not going to give you Oklahoma after all. We'll give it back to white guys, and there's going to be a race to see who gets the land. And that was the land rush. And if you left
1: before the gun went off, you were called a Sooner. That's how the name Sooners came about. And black folks were the beneficiary of that as well. Like, I don't know what year that was, but... 1889. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, they talk about the black Wall Street as if there were just one, but <laughs> like there were many towns. In fact, my my aunt did a genealogical study and turns out that I'm related to the founders of a town called Boley, Oklahoma. And they had a bank, and they started schools, and there were many Black Wall Streets.
2: Yeah, I think that there was a sort of this, I'm going to be a little weak on this history, but there were a group of Black people who said, well, this is an opportunity for us also. We're in on this. If you're giving land away, we want a piece of that. And I don't know, I think 60,000 people settled in what's now Oklahoma as a result of that land rush. I don't know how many were Black, but a not insignificant number.
1: Yeah, and I didn't really put that into perspective until I read The Warmth of Other Suns*. She talks about the, I forget the name of the author, I'm blanking on it, but... Isabel Wilkerson. Yes, yes. She talks about the Great Migration. And during the time of reading, I had Edna Lewis's book, The Taste of Country Cooking. I loved that book, yeah. And it was like, it was right there. It was there all along in the preface. She was talk like, Freetown, Virginia was basically what this was, what these towns were. Autonomous communities of Black people, like, surviving, thriving, and supporting each other. It's interesting. I'll go back and look at Edna.
2: When I was coming up as a food writer in the 80s. She was, I mean, if you didn't consider her iconic, you were making a mistake. So, you know, I get this question a lot in not the same way you get it, but I get asked a lot whether I was a writer first or a cook first. So I'm pretty sure you were an artist first, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah. So I got my MFA. I went to graduate school at Pacific Northwest College of Art in Portland, Oregon. And yeah, I originally had my undergrad in psychology at University of Missouri. I'm from a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri, because I thought psychology was like the safe route, but then me too, I was like <laughs> yeah. I grew to accept that what I wanted most was to pursue art and to draw, to nourish my talent, for drawing. I had a gift for creating likenesses, much to my chagrin. Like, like it didn't generate as much cred as one would think in in art school because art schools have since become instructed by a lot of conceptual artists.
2: Rendering became
1: less important. Yeah, it's like, you might as well be a craftsperson or like, it was like illustrative is like a pejorative in a art critique. And I was like, what's wrong with illustrator? I wanted to be an illustrator. I realized the power and loved the power of like the the cartoons of Thomas Nask. And I found like I could relate to the visceral, almost id articulated by our crumb and so i went to art school got my graduate degree and learned that art was more than just drawing it could be something entirely it could be anything you want it to be it's kind of like an existential like it blew my mind and i resisted a lot of it but a visiting artist daniel joseph martinez came in and totally a friend of mine did we know that yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he mentioned you because when I told him I was going into food, I was like, oh, well, I I did this residency, this artist, this thing with Mark Bittman. And I was like, oh, I'd come across your work a bunch of times.
2: That's really funny. He and a guy named Sinan Antoun, who's an Iraqi-American novelist, and I hung out together for like a month at this residency, and we were sort of the bad boys. I mean, to the extent that, you know, an old guy like
1: me can be a bad boy, but Daniel's
2: not that young either, actually.
1: I think he's in Paris. Well, he came in and he's not soft-spoken. He is very provocative. And he had a nickname in grad school, like when he would do visiting artist gigs or lectures, the Trail of Tears. He'd go, you know, do studio visits with grad students and they'd throw away their, their whole, like, project. I see. I see. Yeah, he's very direct. There's no
2: bullshit about him at all.
1: Yeah, and it, and if you're bullshitting, it's like blood in the water but I wasn't intimidated I and I immediately connected with that like honesty and that just directness I just I don't know why I just we could give and take and I maintained contact with him and visited LA and he was like kind of helped me like decide to come to LA after I graduated came to LA and I was very frustrated and had a lot of resentment to the art world and I didn't know it Or understand it until I got sober and the process of recovery is like it makes you dig into your motivations and I realized that I just I wanted people to know how good I could draw (laughs) I mean I it was deeper than that but if you want to like oversimplify like something very complex it was about validation Everybody wants to be appreciated. Everybody who works
2: hard wants that work to be validated. And I also think, this might not be true of you, but I know it's true of me, there's never enough validation for those of us who perceive ourselves as working hard. I often feel sort of like I'm getting the short shrift, even though I know I'm not. You know, it's like, I feel like no one's giving me enough credit here.
1: Well, I mean, I learned it's a God-shaped hole, like no amount of accolades or awards or money can fill it. So I left art with no intention of ever coming back And I realized that it was like I'd been cooking this whole time and it was something that came natural to me. I left home and my mom was an amazing cook and I realized I'd either have to like lower my standards (laughs) or learn how to cook. So, you know, it was right around the time when Food Network was like blowing up and it was like free cooking school with the best chefs in the world. And so I just taught myself that way, but I never considered it because I'd always thought that lifestyle was ridiculous of a chef or a cook, but I don't know, like four years into being sober, I was just like, hmm, I could approach food like an art project. Like I just learned about supper clubs and it sounded a lot like an exhibition or a performance you know, all the way up to the the marketing and the, the research and designing the menu, creating an experience. And so I dove into food just like an art project. And every art project begins with a ton of research. I just devoured every cookbook and podcast and show that I could come across. And, you know, the other aspect of that is skills acquisition. If you don't know how to do something at the beginning of a project, you set out to learn it.
2: We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out Aquatrue. Aquatrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. Aquatru has water purifiers to fit every type of home from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water less than $0.03 a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the Multi-Terrain Select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I think of it as imitation. Well, learning, I guess, is research. Yeah. Imitation, some kind of synthesis, but that's a magical step. I don't know. That's just after a bunch of practice. You can see a number of things, and they start to meld together into your thing.
1: Yeah, so I knocked on Jeremy Fox's—he was the chef at Rustic Canyon at the time—and knocked on the back door. I'd heard from a number of podcasts that you just, like, show up— with your clogs and a knife roll. And if you show up on farmer's market day, people are, will let you cut produce for free. And so I did. And, you know, I was offered a job. I was like, I'm not going to work for for that low. Like I had a day job. I was an art assistant. Um, so I, I worked for free for a while and then they figured out how to pay me for when I was there on two of my days off. And at a certain point, I was just like, I just I'm doing dishes too much when people call out, so I needed to go home and you know make my menu, and I did, and started Sinkay, which is my project, my food project that you know is focused on tracing the evolution of soul food from West Africa to the across the Atlantic into the South of the American states, and during the migration, soul food is a migratory cuisine a migration from the South into the bigger cities. And, you know, the question is, what does that look like in California? What does soul food look like in California? So as people migrate, they re- respond to geography and proximity to other cultures. So that's how I f- I found Robin Cota. So it's like, well, a dish that goes from West, from Senegal, Chebunyeb, or Niebe, field peas, And rice becomes Hop and John in the South. You know, you trade fermented and smoked fish for smoked bacon and cured bacon. You know, it travels into cities variations. But what does Hop and John look like in California? So I was like, you know, looking at the heirloom ingredients of California and the stories attached to them, and I found Robin Coda of Coda Farms. I used Rancho Gordo beans. I used pork from this amazing uh, farm, Peds and Barnett's. I believe the founder of that farm was like a geneticist or something. These Berkshire pigs that roam around in the forest. Yeah. And then I was like looking at the preparations and, you know, and John typically has like a cruciferous vegetable or like a, you know, cabbage or a collard But I was like, you know, how do we, I made a puree out of the collard greens and tossed it in the rice and they become these green jewels and toss that with Benny seed and from Anson Mills and yeah, make my own hot sauce. And I make these beans just, I twice cook them, bake them and grill the bacon. And that's like California, California style and john sounds awesome sounds over the top awesome yeah but it's like if dishes aren't allowed to evolve and adapt to where people are, like literally in a certain place and where they are in a timeline, then they will die. And it's true because a lot of Black folks that I meet, have met across the years as I've been cooking, they don't know what Hoppin' John is. And it's like one of our major contributions to this country's cuisine. So that's an example of what I was doing with Sinke.
2: I mean, now I know that you think that skill acquisition and research is the beginning of every project, but what did it mean to start Senke? What was the first public appearance of it? What did you do?
1: In the name also was like, my full name originally was Ray Anthony Barrett V. I always grew up with that Roman numeral and an art school, my foundations teacher was like, oh, like Senke," when he heard that it was the fifth. And I was like, who's that? And he was the type where he's if you said it and you didn't look it up, you would just miss it. And so I looked up Joseph Sinke the leader of the Amistad revolt, and I dug deeper and I found out that he actually won his freedom and returned back to Sierra Leone. And his name was actually Singbe. So I thought that was interesting. And when I was thinking about how the story that the my menus are telling, Trace from Africa to America and back again, I thought that that story of Cinque, and especially during a time, you know, this is after 2016, it was 2018 when I started the business. And I, I felt like the power politic of that figure in my name, the question of whether or not I'm actually the fifth, Like, I don't even know how to answer that. Like, I don't have, you know, I'm not a celebrity. I don't have Henry Louis Gates on my team. Like, it's just a question that I don't have the skills to answer. So I left the art world, but I was connected to the art world. And I realized that I wanted to start our first pop-up at the Underground Museum which is an alternative art space started by this couple, Noah Davis and Cron Davis. And after Noah Davis died, early death of cancer, his legacy has lived on in the programming of this institution in uh the Black-owned alternative art space in LA, and I knew that I, I wanted to start it there. And so we did three pop-ups during their summer film screening in the garden area. Like they'll show films like Purple Rain and more obscure films and really art house films. And so that's that was the beginning of that. From that point forward, I was always connected to the art world in ways in which i my art making never gave me access to. So like I was doing something at the underground museum. Then the director of freeze Los Angeles, the art fair came and enjoyed the food and vitamin D to freeze Los Angeles. And I ended up doing something at the Institute of contemporary art in Los Angeles all pop-ups, all catering, and then I did this project at Gagosian in Beverly Hills, and it was like I couldn't try harder to do stuff in art, and none of like none of the ways I could get, connect to that community worked with the work that I was doing back then, which was was interesting, but it was hyper focused on illustrating these rhymes that I wrote, and you know the food just seemed to have more depth and importance. In my world, at least, the conversation about food
2: and politics has really just began. I mean, I'm not saying that food wasn't always political, but here in the United States, that conversation has not been a mainstream conversation, and I think it's just becoming one. I know you're a part of that. I wonder if you just comment on that.
1: In politics or? Food and politics. Food and politics. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I had this plan of going, you know, the traditional trajectory of food is, you know have a series of restaurants and catering empire to actually make money. But the pandemic like completely put all of those ambitions on hold or in halt. and I didn't want to pivot into making takeout orders for a year and a half. And I realized that if this is how we're responding to the pandemic, Then there's no way we're going to do anything about climate change that's responsible. And I was like, that's a very, it sounds very nihilistic, but it's just somebody's got to say it. Somebody has to have the bad manners to like raise the hand and say, like, these are the same people who are supposed to do right by climate change. (laughs) Yeah. It made me realize that I had to expand my art practice to involve food, that I had to look at an approach. Uh, what I was doing with food as an artist. And the importance of food is, like you talk about this in your book, Animal, Vegetable, Junk. Everything begins with food. What I love about food is it takes all these abstract conversations about politics, race, socioeconomics, and grounds them. It literally is into the ground. It's the soil. It is about the soil, yep. Yeah, so it grounds all these conversations that... People can get lost and then they can argue about semantics. And then you're talking not about the thing that you really want to make progress on. You're arguing about the words and the language that you're using. And it's like, no, but like people are getting exploited. People are getting enslaved. The land is getting poisoned. Yeah. All these things are very important. And. It was like right after I did this residency in Central Oregon. And I was like doing studio visits with all these art students. I tried one thing with each of the eight students I I did a visit was I was like, if you leave this grad program and you think that all you can do is make art, then you've missed the point. We need artists to become farmers. We need artists to become electricians. We need artists to become like in every aspect of our culture, we need creative thinkers to look at the ways in which we are doing things and question them and present new possibilities. I like that a lot
2: because artists look at things differently, or at least in theory, look at things differently than other people
1: do. No, I experienced this on a farm. So, when I was ready to expand my practice to incorporate food, there was already this organization who was just ready to like help commission this project. And I pitched this project. I went on the road for seven months, cooking in the wild and on farms and documented it. Mm-hmm. And I shot an experimental documentary of it with my childhood friend, Rusty Baldwin, who was getting his masters in film. So he's the cinematographer, but I also have been writing dispatches travel journals along the way. It's called Dispatches from the Western Wild. And they've been releasing those in leading up to the programming of the screening of the film next spring. And eventually there will be a dinner, but it was great that I had this organization to help us transition from strictly art to strictly food to now this expansive practice that uses food as a way to interrogate and unpack these bigger social issues last question what jefford's dinner last night i had braised pork shoulder koda farms white rice with furikake and yeah i made a gravy from the braising liquid was the braise sort of japanese also you know i make miso's so I made my own like black eyed pea miso and I had some black garlic. and Wow. Some, yeah. You're um, underselling this a little bit, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so I put black garlic, black eyed pea miso, tamari in the braise. And so, you know, the braising liquid was super rich. And so I took the braising liquid and then brought it over and I took an immersion blender, blended it up put it back in a pot and then threw some butter in it to make this really delicious sauce over the pork shoulder. And I also, you know, made some bacon bits for some texture. And...
2: Oh, that sounds incredible. I'm glad I asked. All right, good. Well, I'm going to call Robin. I'm going to call Daniel. You've made me think of a lot of people, which I appreciate, but also is a great conversation. So thanks for having it.
1: Yeah. Thanks for making it happen.
2: This is a perfect winter recipe, an odd style of onion soup we call charred onion soup. It's got torn bread with it. It is decidedly not traditionally French because the first ingredient is ketchup. So start by turning on the broiler, put the rack about four inches from the heat source, and in a large pot with eight cups of water and a large pinch of salt, combine a third of a cup of ketchup, three tablespoons of Dijon mustard, Four bay leaves, a teaspoon and a half of celery seeds, a teaspoon and a half of paprika, a teaspoon of ground ginger, and a few gratings of nutmeg or a pinch of allspice or ground cloves. Bring that to a boil. And take a six-ounce piece of parmesan with the rind and grate about a quarter or a half a cup of that for garnish and put the whole rest of the piece, rind and all, into the pot with the spices Adjust the heat so the stock bubbles steadily and let it simmer while you cook the onions. Stir that stock occasionally so the cheese doesn't stick to the bottom of the pot. For the onions, you're going to want about six cups of sliced onions. That'll probably be four large onions, obviously peeled and sliced in the food processor or by hand or on a mandolin, whatever you like. Put the onions on a rimmed baking sheet with two tablespoons of soy sauce. Sprinkle that with salt and pepper and toss it. Then broil, stirring once or twice until the onions are just soft and charred in a few places. That'll take 10 to 15 minutes. Then add the onions to the pot with your simmering stock. And onto that baking sheet, pour a cup of white wine, and scraping up any brown bits, And add that to the stock pot. Cook that stirring occasionally until the stock darkens and the onions become silky. That's 30 to 45 minutes. Longer is better. Fish out those bay leaves and remove the hunk of cheese from the stock and chop it up, including the rind that'll become chewy and soft enough to eat and really delicious. Put that cheese back in the pot and then use a potato masher or an immersion blender to break up the onions and thicken the broth. You don't want to puree, but just thicken it some. Taste and adjust the seasoning and then to serve, put some toasted baguette or other crusty bread torn into bite-sized pieces in the bottom of each of four bowls and then ladle in the soup. Don't forget to garnish with that cheese that you grated an hour before. That is a fabulous soup. As I said at the beginning, I came off of this conversation with Ray Anthony Barrett totally inspired. It was a great deal to think about. I hope you feel similarly. Many thanks to him for coming on. Follow him on Instagram, Ray Anthony Barrett. That's R A Y A N T H O N Y B A R R E T T, and at a underscore L A C I N Q U E underscore L A. And check out his current project with Active Cultures. That's activecultures.org slash Ray Anthony Barrett. Thank you for joining us. We will speak to you next week.